We are going to be in the last portion of John chapter 4. So we're going to be in John chapter 4, verses 43 to, through 54. John chapter 4, 43 through 54. Now the Gospel of John is traditionally divided up into five sections. The first we've already worked through being the prologue. So John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 is the prologue to this Gospel. It introduces us to the promised hero, Jesus, and reveals his identity as God in the flesh. John chapter 1, verses 19, begins a larger section uh, in this gospel known as the Book of Signs. So John chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 12 is known as the Book of Signs, where throughout seven specific signs that Jesus did are detailed with the purpose of pointing to Christ, his true identity as the Messiah in different ways. So this is a section we, we find ourselves in, and we've already seen the first of these seven signs or miracles, Jesus turning water into wine. In this large part of the Gospel of John are smaller sections. Chapters 2 to 4 describe his general ministry in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Uh, we've seen some defining things as we've been moving through these passages. Ultimately, what we see in chapters 2 through 4 is what takes place because of the arrival of Jesus. So if you remember uh, in chapter 2, we see the real purification of the temple, and that points to Jesus being the true temple. Chapter 3 points us to the true birth, the second birth, the birth being born from above by the Holy Spirit. This was a conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. And in chapter 4, we see a conversation with a Samaritan woman turned into a conversation around true worship. Where will God's people worship? And Jesus tells us there will come a time where it's not about where you go, but who you know, that worship will happen in spirit and truth. These events and conversations have pointed us to an hour that is coming, where these things will come, but what we've seen is that this is not necessarily emphasized what we can expect right now. And so in this final narrative, in this final portion of chapter 4, in this small section in chapters 2 to 4, the Gospel of John will switch from what is coming in part to what now is by showing the actions of Jesus. That in this event that's going to occur in chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, we will not just see what's coming in the future, but what Jesus is doing right now now in the life that he's come to restore. Even greater, though, I think for us to see is that the sign of Jesus that he'll demonstrate in this chapter will point us to a truth about who he is and why then we should listen carefully to the words Jesus speaks. I, I, the encouragement, I hope, for all of us is this, that we are called to believe in his word even when you can't see the results because of who he is. We are called to believe in his word, even when we can't see the results because of who he is. We're going to see this fleshed out in three rhythms that the text provides for us. Verses 43 to 45, the circus is back in town. Verses 43 to 45, the circus is back in town. 
Verses 46 to 50, I need to see a miracle. I need to see a miracle. And verses 51 to 54, his word is enough. His word is enough. So we're going to read John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. This is the word of God. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And he was going down. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us understanding as we seek to uh, understand, comprehend the, the second, the meaning of this second sign or miracle. Jesus, we, we pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would be heard and seen and known as we work through this text. In your name we pray. Amen. Janet uh, M. Davis writes that when Barnum and Bailey's greatest show on earth rolled into American towns in the 1880s, daily life abruptly stopped. Months before the show arrived, an advanced team started uh, saturating the region with brilliantly colored uh, graphs of extraordinary elephants, bearded ladies, clowns, tigers, acrobats, and trick riders. And when Circus Day finally came, huge crowds gathered to observe the arrival of the herds and droves of camels, zebras, and other exotic animals. Families would witness the raising of tented city cities across nine acres and a morning parade that made its way down their main street. Advertising the circus as a wondrous array of captivating performers and beasts from around the world. For isolated American audiences at the time, the circus collapsed the entire globe into this thrilling sensation of sound, smell, and color right outside your doorsteps. The circus had a tight, captivating grip on the American public like nothing else during this time. People needed to see this act for themselves. For the people of Galilee, I imagine if it was much like this with the arrival of Jesus. The circus act was coming back in town. In fact, 
The one coming was actually homegrown talent. Jesus was on his way. Let's look at verse 43 again. After the two days he departed for Galilee. So Jesus had just spent the last two days in Samaria. After hearing the testimony of the woman at the well, some believed in that town of Samaria, and many were curious to hear more. And so they asked Jesus to stay. And after two days, we learn that many more came to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. But it was time for Jesus to come back home. So we get to an interesting passage in verse 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. This is a passage you may have seen elsewhere. Matthew 13.57 says something very similar. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Maybe you've heard the saying, familiarity uh, breeds contempt. Well, that's exactly the case with those who grew up around Jesus. In Matthew 13, we're told that Jesus returns home, and in verse 54, coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and his mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense to him. Jesus' statement here in the Gospel of John had been true for the prophets that had come before him and would be no different in his own experience. Despite his identity that's been revealed to us in the prologue of John as the Word Man, God in the flesh, the one place where Jesus should be believed and seen as who he is would be the one with those most familiar with him. But instead, they have come to see Jesus wrongly. But that didn't mean Jesus wasn't special. So when he came, verse 45, to Galilee, we read that the Galileans welcomed him. Why? Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. But up to this point, we've seen really one miracle described in the Jesus turning the water into wine. We have read that he has done multiple signs. Nicodemus says so himself in chapter two, 3. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus had quickly become the greatest attraction, receiving attention from everyone everywhere. Many of those from his hometown had been in Jerusalem during the feast where Jesus had cleansed the temple and, among other things, demonstrated his power in these signs and miracles. So at the news that Jesus is returning, well, people find out and they're excited to see the show. They're not excited to see Jesus, the Son of God, but Jesus, the man of many signs. Realize that though they saw the signs he committed, they didn't see him for who he was, the Messiah. But they were more than willing to be entertained by the things he could do. That is God in the flesh, but a magician with parlor tricks. Because again, the circus was back in town. And what we should see as we read this text and interact with the, the response of the Galileans is a complete rejection of the unique Son of God. 
both his identity and his purpose are being pushed aside as those most familiar with him treat him as a commodity, a tool to be enjoyed until it is no longer useful. I think it here is both a question and a warning. First, is Jesus really just another act to be seen? Like the circus, he, he comes in town, displays some interesting tricks for us to see and sights, only to leave a few days later until the next one comes around. Is Jesus really just one among many? As you zoom out, this idea that what Jesus presents, what he offers in religious life and hope is no different than any other, is something that we see as we interact with people. Whether you follow Buddha, believe in karma, or simply believe in a higher power, it doesn't matter because all of them lead or basically offer the same thing. Jesus is just another act you can see. Well, is that true? Some have determined that to be yes, but something to realize is that Jesus does not claim to be among the rest. He claims to be set apart and different from all others. That what we see claimed in the Gospel of John is that his miracles are not simply parlor tricks, but signs that point to someone in something altogether different than anything any other faith offers. Jesus' words in this book claim an identity different than any other faith because he claims to be the one true and living God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, come to save the world of its brokenness. Jesus' signs point to eternal life that can only be obtained in faith through him. And the price for that, we're told, is his own life. These core truths are different, and if true, the only hope that we have in this world. There's also a warning, I think, contained in these verses for us. That even as Christians, we can slip into viewing Jesus wrongly because of how familiar we think we are with him. That we can treat him in very similar ways that those who grew up with him did. We can see Jesus mainly as a giver of gifts, uh, a man who works miracles on our behalf. Right? How many of us would love if someone just decided to buy your Amazon wish list? That everything on your wish list was just bought today, no questions asked. Or if you, you're, the list you gave to Santa this year. Someone said, you know what, I'm going to get all those things for you. This is how often we can treat Christ, though. As someone who we, we have a list of prayer requests that we're saying, these are the things I really need you to do, and until you get those done, this is all I have really need for you for. Instead of being in awe of who Jesus is, we can slip into demands of signs. Knowing Jesus as well as we do, we can treat him no differently than we do a friend who lives states away from us. Right? We text them maybe once a year, twice because of their birthday. We reach out when we need something or if there's an emergency, but otherwise our lives go on. This fails to recognize Jesus as God and Lord of the universe who doesn't just ask, but actually demands our worship and our, awe, our obedience and our adoration. It is good to be familiar with Jesus, to know he is a friend, that he is with you in the good and the bad, as long as what being familiar doesn't mean you have forgotten that he is otherworldly, that he is holy, that he sits 
at the right hand of God above all of creation. What's more remarkable, I think, than the rejection of Jesus by those who grew up with him is his willingness, the God-man, to go and minister to these people who would not show him the honor that, that he doesn't need to earn but deserves in being who he is. But Jesus demonstrates in his ministry going back home, what he will ultimately show on the cross, that while we were still yet sinners, he died for us. So let's look more closely at his ministry in Cana and Galilee. Verses 46 to 50. I need to see a miracle. Verse 46. So he came again to Cana and Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. As Jesus makes his return home, we're introduced to another person. At Capernaum, there is an official whose son, we're told, is sick. Last week, I mentioned that this official was likely a Gentile, but it is actually hard for us to know for certain. What is clear, what's more clear, is that he was an official serving Herod Antipas, who although was not technically king of the area, he was very much treated like one. Herod was a subordinate ruler for the Roman Empire. He was in charge of Galilee and uh, Peria. You might remember him as the guy who would give the command to have John the Baptist's head chopped off. That's that dude. The official's ethnic identity is less clear, but contextually it would fit that after Jesus had just come from Samaria, where they believed and the official, uh, the, many of the town believed, that the official in this whole household would also be Gentiles, fitting into this, this idea of what we see in Acts chapter 1a. They were meant to go from Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, into the world. We see the same thing replicated in Acts. So contextually, in the redemptive plan of God, it fits. But either way, the point of what Jesus is doing here will not change. Nor does the reason why the official comes to Jesus. Look at me with me at verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So whoever this man is, we know that his son is not simply sick. He's almost dead. But then he hears about 25 miles away, Jesus, the man who does many signs, has come back home. So he begins the journey, 25 miles and a climb of over a thousand feet up to the small town of Cana. On foot, this could take seven hours. This man is desperate to find life for his son, and with death imminent right around the corner, he turns to Jesus as his only hope and asks, Come and heal my son. What does Jesus say? Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. As we've maybe learned walking through the Gospel of John, Jesus' response to statements and questions are more than meets the eye. This is not a simple dismissal of the official's desperation or even a calling necessarily of his lack of faith. One of the things that we miss in our English translation is that the word you is actually in the plural. So it should say, unless you all see signs and y'all signs and wonders y'all will not believe this statement is not simply directed at the official but everybody 
everyone there. It's meant to convey something that the whole gospel has communicated to us already and continues to say. That we should be a people who take Jesus at his word. But instead, we are a people who demand to see signs and wonders. Remember in verse 45, Jesus is welcomed home because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. In John chapter 2.18, when Jesus cleanses the temple, if you remember the Jews say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Even the disciples who heard the promise of Jesus, heard him speak of what was to come, needed to see. You see that in John chapter 20, right? Jesus has risen from the grave. He's appeared to the sisters, to the disciples, except Thomas. But when they tell him, does he believe it? What does he say? That's right. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, I will never, never believe. The need to see signs and wonders instead of believing and taking Jesus at his word. Do you remember what Jesus says to Thomas after he reveals himself to him? He says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. To hear the truth of the word Jesus should have us take him at his word right there. That's all that is necessary for us to believe. What we're seeing in the gospel, and I think what we've probably seen in our own lives, is that we're stiff-necked. And so we want more, we want more. We demand more. We need to see more. Seeing is believing. And by God's grace, he does give us more. John 20, 31 tells us that these words were written so that we might believe. That this very book was written and preserved that we might see, hear, and believe. But the seven signs recorded in this specific way, in this movement of John, are meant to cause us belief in the word man, Jesus. I think, though, the prayer for us is that that even if we don't see the signs and wonders, that we would believe, not demand Jesus like the circus to provide the product we're looking for, but take him at his word. In uh, Beautiful Eulogies, ooh, that looks like a good donut uh, song. Ooh, that's, uh, ooh, man, those are so good. Oh, they deliver. Oh, is that what Ben went up there for? Uh, good for you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> in a uh, beautiful usually song symbols and signs odd thomas he says this he says are you the kind that's completely consumed by symbols and signs if you are that's fine but don't you find it interesting how most of the time your self-interpreting seems to coincide with what's deep inside your heart's desires seems rather convenient doesn't it i'm not saying that god can't do it not saying that god won't do it that might very well be the case I'm simply making an observation of how much weight you place on it, what seems to be at stake and how much of your faith is actually banking on it, and how much of your mysticism is mixed with your religious philosophic system. Sometimes what we believe to be true from our supernatural pursuits is actually a fluke, a series of events that's used to distract you from the truth. I think the question being posed in the lyrics here is what is the motivation of your faith? What does your faith 
bank on, land on. But I think before we answer that question, we need to get back to the official. Look at verse 49. The official says to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. The, the official's request shouldn't be read as a, a demand, but a plea. One that sees every second that passes as one closer to the death of his son. So how will Jesus respond to him? He says in verse 50, go, your son will live. And then the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. The word has spoken, go, your son will live. And in an incredible response, unlike what we've seen to this point, the official takes him at his word and goes. No sight required. But the question is, is Jesus' word enough? Not seeing the work done before him, will the official be making a seven-hour trip back home to a dead son? So let's consider the final movement of our text, 51 through 54. His word is enough. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him, he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that the hour, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Jesus, the word spoke. And it was, his son would live given life, healing life by Jesus. As we read these verses again, I think what's confronting us, the question is what is the basis, the motivation of our faith in Christ? And furthermore, I think as you cut through the layers of your answer of that question, we need to ask a simpler one. Do we believe Jesus' word? Do we take him at his word? In 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, we meet Naaman. He's a great man, we're told, a commander of the, the commander of the king of Syria's army. He had accomplished a lot in life and had great favor with the king. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper, having a severe skin disease. Well, through a servant, he would learn about the prophet Elisha, who could heal him. And so he goes to Elisha looking for healing, and this is what Elisha says to him through a servant in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 10. Go. And wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. All you got to do to be rid of your skin disease, we're being told, is take a bath seven times. Nice and easy. But then look at Naaman's response in verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abna and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. This is the problem, right? We look for signs and wonders. We need them. We demand them. But I think it's interesting how the servants of Naaman respond. They come to him and say, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? 
He's actually said to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Babies do have like the best skin. It's like amazing. What was the problem with Naaman? For him, the word given was not grand enough. It wasn't big enough. It wasn't enough that the prophet of God had simply spoken. The words spoken were being told was great, not because of the words, but because it was the prophet of God who spoke them. What we need to see is that when Jesus speaks, his word is enough. Not simply because he is because of the eloquency of the words strung together, not because the words in themselves have some innate power in them, but because the word, God in the flesh, has spoken it. That is what makes them powerful. That is what makes what comes to pass come to pass because of who has spoken them. So when the Israelites look for signs and wonders, what they are rejecting is the object of what should be their faith, which is the word, Christ. We, be, we believe because it is Jesus' word. And so we don't need to see signs and wonders. And so what does our faith bank on? What signs are we looking for in order to believe in Jesus? And the last part of that verse by uh, Odd Thomas in Symbols and Signs, he says this, but I'll give you a sign that's obvious. One of the most supernatural acts is that God, through his word, has actually revealed everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's this idea that an individual is somehow more spiritual if he sees more signs and symbols and takes what's normally invisible and makes it simple. But I say the mark of a mature man is the one who reads God's word and understands and allows that to govern his decisions and his perspective plans. He's saying that the sign we can most eagerly look to is the very word we're studying in this moment, the very word that we are allowing to speak truth into our life. That if we take Jesus at his word, we should open up our Bibles and believe him. This means that learning to believe the promises of God means going to his word where he speaks those truths to us. Again, I think sometimes we go to God and we demand that he shows us these signs and wonders. Father, give me financial security. Give me, give me peace. Make all the hardships in my life go away instantaneously. When we take Jesus at his word, we actually can know what he says will come to pass and trust that he will give us those things. Knowing that he's, he's promised us eternal life and the quality of such that though our lives don't look like what they will, they will get there. And knowing that and trusting that means that we don't demand, we pray. We don't demand that God gives us what we think we need right now, but we pray that as God's plans unfold, that we can trust in what he's doing because he is working out his promises real time. And I hope that as we think and consider that, that we do see that this sign is pointing us to that reality, that Jesus is working today in this already not yet, in the, the time and space that we're waiting for him to come back, he's still doing things right now. That yes, we do have a future hope, 
one where perfection is waiting. But God is right now showing us His power, His love, His grace in our lives. That the hour used in this section that normally points to Jesus' death points us, again, not just to a future hope of what's coming, but an hour that is now where Jesus is working in this world and bringing us hope and life in his name. That we get to right now taste what we will get to know in full later. A future hope that we can experience in part today. Look at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So what's the point of this second sign? What, what might be obvious is that the miracle reveals Jesus has the power to save from death even when he's far away. Jesus' word has the power to work miracles even though he himself is far removed from the place of need. While Jesus does not believe his presence is required, that the miracle must be seen, the official, if you remember, pleads that he would come with him. Come down before my child comes. No one else believes that Jesus can do that miracle without being there. The official assumes that the healing can only occur with Jesus present. So it is incredible that he, when Jesus says, go, your son will live, will believe and while we hear in verse 50 that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, healing at a distance does require more faith than healing when Jesus is present. And so when we're told again in verse 53 that he hears the hour that his son was healed was the same hour Jesus said your son will live, we can see that these beliefs are a little bit different. That yes, he believed Jesus, but in seeing the work of Jesus done, his belief has been intensified. That he now knows that when Jesus speaks, it happens. That the believing of, we see in verse 53, is not just about the amazing fact that his son has been healed, but that he's been healed from a distance. That this healing was unseen. That it was done by Jesus, but in the absence of Jesus. The emphasis of this miracle, the sign then, is the authority of the Messiah's word. It's similar to the first miracle in that same way, that Jesus turns the water into wine by his spoken word. And these point to the prologue, that we're told Jesus is the logos, the word of God. But what this sign means to demonstrate is that Jesus really is the authoritative Word of God who can make all things happen as He speaks it. That Jesus is the divine Messiah who has the power and authority to command life to be. His Word is enough. With His Word, the Son lives. In verse 53, we see the title Father used of the official. So they, they, they switch these titles. Then it, it softens the tone of the text that Jesus has not just met the need 
of an official, but a father searching for life for his son. And seeing that Jesus, the Word was enough to bring life, has all, not just this father, but his whole household, believing in Jesus. Because they've come to understand when Jesus speaks, he is to be believed. That we should take him at his word. But in this verse, I think, is another picture of another official, a royal one sent by God, not to bring a message of the death of another, but the death of himself. There's a picture of a son whose purpose was to die. Jesus is the royal official sent by God into a world to proclaim that he is the Messiah, that there is hope in his name. And God the Father will send his son into the world not to come close to death, not to brush by it, but to actually die. To die for a people who are stubborn and stiff-necked, who, who refuse to take him at his word, but demand to see signs and wonders. He, in love, will send his word to us to inaugurate and begin the work of opening our eyes, clearing up our ears, that we might see and hear God and spirit and truth. That it would not be signs and wonders we would look for, but the living God Himself, the Word, that we might take Him seriously. Jesus would die for our sins, and three days later raise from the grave, demonstrating that He, the Messiah, who has command over life, should be taken at His Word. Now those promises He makes to come back, John chapter 2, as He cleanses the temple, and they demand a sign, and He gives them one. He says, destroy this temple. And in three days, you will see it restored. That in fulfilling that promise, we're shown again that we should be a people who take the Word at His Word. And so I think the call for us is to believe in Jesus, the Word God, even when we can't see the results, because of who He is, the divine Messiah who has command over life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the Gospel of John. We, we thank you for uh, this second miracle, this second sign which points us to the authoritative word, Jesus. That as the people in this Gospel demonstrate, as we often demonstrate, we demand a sign where we should only open up our ears and listen. That when Jesus speaks, his words are true, and we should believe him. So help us, God. Help us to take seriously your word. Help us to hear you and to not forget ourselves, but to hear your word and be doers of it, doers of it, to be trusters of who you are, what you've come to do, and what you've called us to be in you. Help us to do what we cannot do in our own. Help us to, to live in a way we cannot live without the power of the Spirit. That by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of God, by the fellowship of the Spirit with us, we can live in trust of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.